Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Airwave, a student-led anesthesia podcast for medical students. My name is Dilji Gill, and I'm a third-year medical student at McMaster University. Joining me today is my good friend and co-host, Cody. Thanks, Dil, for the absolutely warm welcome. My name is Cody, and I'm also a third-year medical student at McMaster University. As always, this podcast reflects our own views and not necessarily those of our institution. I'd also like to emphasize that Airwave is a podcast that is not for medical advice, but just good old-fashioned medical education. Today, we'll be talking about an overview of neuroaxial anesthesia with a clinical case, of course, and we'll be answering the following questions. Number one, what is neuroaxial anesthesia? Number two, what is the relevant anatomy and physiology? Number three, what are the indications and contraindications? Number four, what are the techniques involved and what are the advantages to using each modality? Number five, what are the common side effects and adverse events? Now that sounds like an episode that will bring a tingle down your spine. (laughs) Let's start by defining neuraxial anesthesia. So neuraxial anesthesia is the administration of an anesthetic into the epidural or the subarachnoid space. This is typically achieved via using a spinal needle or epidural catheter. Did you just say subarachnoid? Please tell me this has nothing to do with spiders. (laughs) Not to worry, Cody. Unlike arachnids, subarachnoid refers to an anatomical space. Funnily enough, however, the arachnoid mater was named for its resemblance with a spider web, so you're actually not that far off. While we're on this topic, why don't we go over the relevant anatomy that we should know about before jumping into today's case. Let's start with the spine. So the spine is composed of vertebral bones and intervertebral discs. We have 33 vertebrae. Those are 7 cervical, 12 thoracic, 5 lumbar, 5 sacral, and 4 coccyx. Important surface landmarks include C7, the bony prominence that's found at the base of the neck, T7, which is found adjacent to the inferior angle of the scapula, and L4 that can be found at the level of the iliac crests. At each vertebral level, paired spinal nerves exit the central nervous system. When performing a neuraxial technique, it's also important to consider the morphology and angulation of the vertebral bodies at the level that you're performing the procedure. I would highly recommend getting your hands on a model of a spine and seeing the differences in the angulation of the lumbar and thoracic spine. But in short, The spinous processes at the cervical and lumbar spine are nearly horizontal, while those at the level of the thoracic spine slant caudally and can overlap significantly. These differences will dictate the needle angulation and general approach that you will take to access the epidural or subarachnoid space. Be sure to check out the show notes where we've included a link to a virtual anatomy module offered by the Toronto General Hospital Department of Anesthesia which provides an excellent visual aid for reviewing spinal anatomy. Thanks for that, Dill. When performing a neuraxial technique, it's also important to consider the level of termination of the spinal cord or the level of the film terminale, as you ideally would want to perform a spinal below the level as it avoids potential needle injury to the spinal cord. In most adults, the spinal cord ends at L1. However, it is to note that the level of the conus medullaris follows a normal distribution and that L1 is the average. Now let's go over the relevant anatomical internal structures our epidural and spinal needles will pass through if we are doing a midline approach. So the first layer that you will traverse when performing a neuraxial technique is obviously the skin, followed by subcutaneous tissue. Then you will enter the supraspinous ligament, 
followed by interspinous ligament, and then followed by ligamentum flavum. Beyond the ligamentum flavum lies the dura mater, and it is here we find a potential space known as the epidural space. Deep to the dura mater, and usually adherent to it, is the arachnoid mater. Beyond this is a subarachnoid space, sometimes also known as the intrathecal space, and this is where cerebrospinal fluid, or CSF, is found. To recap, the epidural space is a potential space that lies between the ligamentum flavum and the dura mater. The subarachnoid space, or intrathecal space as it's sometimes known, is deep to the arachnoid mater, and this is where CSF is found. Without going into too much detail, we'll briefly discuss the spinal cord anatomy as it pertains to neuraxial anesthesia. The spinal cord is covered by the meninges, which is composed of three layers, the pia mater, which is adherent to the spinal cord, and the arachnoid and dura mater, which as above, are often adhered to one another. As we discussed earlier, the spinal cord extends superiorly from the magnum foramen down to the level of L1 in most adults. In children, however, the spinal cord can extend down to L3 and will progress upwards with age. Oh, that's very interesting. So now that we've reviewed the relevant anatomy, let's dive into today's case. You're on the labor and delivery ward and are called about a 28-year-old primip with no other significant past medical history. Her contractions are becoming more frequent and she has requested analgesia from her obstetrician. What do you think would be a good approach for this patient's analgesia? Well, Dill, based on the episode's name, I think it would be a good time to consider some neuraxial anesthesia. But before we jump into any procedure, let's review the indications and contraindications. The indications for neuraxial anesthesia are to provide either analgesia, for example, including pain relief after surgery or during a labor and delivery, or to provide surgical anesthesia, a lack of sensation to the point of tolerating the surgery even without general anesthesia. If used for surgical anesthesia, it is more commonly, but not exclusively, done for surgeries happening below the umbilicus, which corresponds to the T10 dermatome. When used for analgesia, it is more commonly done with an epidural and can happen on any level of the spine. Its ideal level will be guided by where the pain will be felt. So for example, if it is an upper abdominal surgery, the epidural will be done at a level that will cover the dermatomes where the incision will be. For instance, an insertion at T7, T8 level will cover the dermatomes T6 to T10. Neuraxial anesthesia for surgical anesthesia is great for patients that would benefit from avoidance of general anesthesia and do not have a contraindication for neuraxial anesthesia. Neuraxial anesthesia for analgesia is a great addition to a multimodal analgesic strategy, therefore decreasing or even eliminating opioid needs. Now, absolute contraindications for any neuraxial technique include one that should be kept in mind for any invasive procedure, and that is patient refusal to consent. Always remember to obtain informed consent prior to performing any procedure. Moving on, there are several relative contraindications to consider, starting with hematological reasons such as thrombocytopenia or patients on anticoagulation therapy. Looking back to our case, in a laboring woman, we must also consider HELP syndrome, which stands for hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. Although no precise cutoff exists, it can be helpful to check the platelet count and recent trends for a patient prior to beginning. A rapidly declining count 
may be of higher concern than a patient with stable, chronically low platelets. Additionally, other relative contraindications include increased intracranial pressure, allergies to the medication being administered, uncooperative patients who are unable to position well, sepsis or a local infection, and a fixed cardiac output state, such as aortic stenosis or mitral stenosis. Additionally, spinal column deformities, such as osteoarthritic changes and osteophyte formations, can create anatomical obstacles, increasing the difficulty in navigating to the correct space. One tip is to use ultrasound guidance when anticipating this challenge to help with visualization and to help plan your technique like angle of entry. In fact, recent meta-analyses suggest that ultrasound should be used routinely, not only for challenging cases. Now that we know our patient has no absolute relative, absolute or relative contraindications, let's go ahead and talk about the different types of neuraxial anesthesia. The most common type is epidural analgesia. The goal here is to thread an epidural catheter into the epidural space for administration of a local anesthetic solution, plus or minus some opioids. There are a few different approaches one can use, but for our learning purposes, we'll stick to the midline approach, which is an ideal case. Today, typically the patient is placed in a seated position for better visualization of the anatomical midline. Alternatively, the lateral decubitus position can be used. First, we palpate for L4 using the iliac crest and ask for the patient to hunch forward. You can imagine for a pregnant patient in labor, maintaining this position can be difficult. So to make things easier, it can help to provide the patient with a pillow to hug while hunching forward and to ask a nurse to help support the patient's position and to prevent them from falling forward. Flexion of the spine maximizes intervertebral distance and makes it easier to palpate spaces. For even greater accuracy, an ultrasound probe can be used to count spaces. L4 is an ideal location for epidural analgesia because of where the pain for a laboring patient occurs. It is roughly T10 to L1 dermatomes for the first stage of labor, which is caused by uterine contractions and distension of the cervix and low uterine segments. Later, S2 to S4 dominate during the second stage of labor, which can be caused by tissue damage in the pelvis and perineum. Once the clinician is ready to begin, a sterile field is established. Perfect. Thanks, Cody. So then we start by inserting local anesthetic using a small 25-gauge needle. Often during local administration, a skilled clinician will use this time to mentally visualize the anatomy by mapping it out with this needle. Once the patient is adequately frozen, we insert a two-he needle with a stylet at a slight cephalad angle. Recalling back to our brief overview of the spinal anatomy, the needle is then advanced with minimal resistance through the subcutaneous tissues before passing through the supraspinous ligament and intraspinous ligaments, which is typically met with increased resistance. If met with bone, the needle can be redirected by positioning upwards or downwards with close attention being paid to maintaining a midline position. As the needle proceeds, another moment of increased resistance is noted as the needle penetrates the ligamentum flavum. With this technique, the needle is advanced slowly while continuously testing the resistance with a special syringe. Now take a quick pause and make mental note of this stage in the procedure because we will come back to it later. At this point, a sudden loss of resistance to injection of air or saline is encountered, marking the epidural space. 
it is important to draw back on the syringe to assess the presence of CSF. If negative, as in no CSF return is seen, the clinician is reassured that they're likely in the correct space. With this reassurance, we can then thread an epidural catheter into the epidural space for anesthetic solution administration. If CSF is present, it means the needle advanced more than intended and went through the dura and arachnoid mater. That's what's called an accidental dural puncture or wet tap. We'll have more on this later in the episode. With an epidural catheter, you have the advantage to titrate the medication as opposed to a single shot procedure. Furthermore, since we cannot predict for how long the patient will be in labor, it allows for continued analgesia for as long as needed. If the patient requires a cesarean section, if the clinical situation allows, you can use the epidural catheter to administer higher doses and larger volume of medication to achieve surgical anesthesia and allow the patient to be awake for the delivery of their baby. Additionally, another advantage to an epidural is that it can be inserted at any level of the spine since the needle will not actually be inserted into the intrathecal space, unlike with a spinal. Some disadvantages here include the need for larger dosing requirements, and there are typically higher failure rates compared with a spinal. That's not to suggest that there are high failure rates overall. Another type of neuroaxial anesthesia is spinal anesthesia. The goal of the spinal is to insert a needle into the subarachnoid space for administration of an anesthetic solution that usually involves a local anesthetic plus or minus opioids. We'll again aim for a space by L4, which in this case is an ideal location because as mentioned earlier, the spinal cord ends at L1 in most adults, thus reducing the risk of needle injury to the cord. Now recall to when Dill asks you to make a mental note of the epidural procedure. Spinal anesthesia involves similar steps up until the point when the needle is penetrating through the ligamentum flavum. The difference here is that we're now using a spinal needle with no catheter or special syringe to test the resistance. Now, unlike with an epidural for a spinal, the needle is further advanced through the dura and arachnoid matters, which may be noted as a subtle pop sensation and via visual confirmation with CSF flashback after withdrawing the stylet. Confirmation of CSF flashback provides reassurance that the needle has likely advanced in the subarachnoid space, and now we are ready to administer the anesthetic solution. One neat tip shared to me by a resident for troubleshooting during needle advancement is to use the best resource available, the patient. Ask the patient if they are having any pain or paresthesias. One-sided symptoms should prompt the clinician to redirect the needle slightly to the contralateral side. Some advantages of this technique include higher success rates, faster onset, smaller dosing requirements in comparison with epidurals, and some disadvantages of this technique are a shorter dur duration of action limited to the lumbar site insertion only and that you can only you cannot easily give more anesthetic as there's no catheter to inject in. Amazing. So going back to our case, our 28-year-old primate patient is in labor, and if my OBGYN rotation has taught me anything, it is that primiparous women can have very lengthy labor durations, often lasting 12 to 18 hours sometimes. For this reason, an epidural catheter has the benefit of allowing for continuous infusion or intermittent bolus technique to adequately meet ongoing analgesic needs. Whereas with a spinal, this may not last through the paralabor period. 
Additionally, should an emergent complication arise during this time, an epidural in situ can provide ideal access for increasing the level and density of the blockade to achieve surgical anesthesia for a C-section. However, it is to note that this may take several minutes, and in a true emergent situation that requires quicker action, a GA, or general anesthetic, may still be needed. We will choose to insert an epidural in our patient. Excellent choice, Dill. But before we start the procedure, let's review some adverse effects and possible complications. Some adverse events include an inadequate or failed neuraxial anesthesia, high or total spinal anesthesia when there is an overdose of local anesthetic, nerve injury, localized point tenderness for several days afterwards, posterior puncture headache, which is a positional headache that occurs after the puncture of the dura, urinary transient neurological symptoms, which include pain and dysthesia in the lower extremities, retention, local anesthetic systemic toxicity, and spinal epidural hematoma and central nervous system infection. Thanks, Cody. Now looking back to our case, we insert an epidural for our patient, then shortly after she becomes hypotensive. What, we, what can we do to manage this? One complication of neuraxial blockades is an excessive response to local anesthetic. This will often manifest as dyspnea, sensation of numbness, followed by hypotension. Some ways to prevent this complication include consideration of the technique used. So for instance, the anesthetic dosing for spinal versus epidural technique varies substantially. We definitely do not want to be giving epidural dosing into the intrathecal space. It's also important to recognize selected patients in whom to reduce standard doses so, for example, the elderly, pregnant patients, patients with obesity, or those with very short stature. Spinal anesthetic ascending into the cervical spine will cause severe hypotension, bradycardia, apnea, or altered level of consciousness, and this is known as a high spinal. Treatment if this complication arises involves maintaining arterial oxygenation, ventilation, and circulation. This may necessitate placement of an advanced airway for mechanical ventilation and IV vasopressors plus fluids to treat the hypotension. Atropine can also be used to treat profound bradycardia. After treating her hypotension with IV phenylephrine, a few hours pass and the epidural is no longer providing adequate analgesia despite attempting additional doses. To make matters even worse, the obstetrician informs you that they suspect the patient will likely require a stat emergency C-section. Keep in mind that a true emergent situation may necessitate the need for general anesthetic. However, for the purpose of today's episode, let's imagine that the patient will like to remain awake and the obstetrician assures you that you still have time. What other neuraxial anesthesia can you offer the patient? Oh man, that's a pretty scary scenario. But as we spoke about earlier, we could offer her spinal anesthesia since it has a relatively fast onset and can provide the surgical anesthesia needed for an emergency C-section. Fast forward, you say congratulations to the patient as a 3,500 gram baby girl has been born. You go to check on the patient in the postpartum wing the next day, and you find that she is complaining of a headache that is worse every time she sits or stands up. What is the most likely diagnosis, and how can we treat this? So a possible complication following neuraxial technique is post-dural puncture headache, also referred to using the acronym PDPH. 
This may occur during any puncture through the dura mater, resulting in the leakage of CSF and subsequent intracranial hypotension. The loss of CSF occurs at a rate faster than it can be replenished, and the resultant intracranial hypotension creates this traction on intracranial structures such as the meninges. PDPH causes a positional headache that is aggravated by sitting up or standing and is alleviated by lying flat. This is because elevating the head further decreases intracranial pressure, hence why we observe the hallmark positional headache. But wait, Dill, you got it all wrong. Didn't we do an epidural in our patient, which doesn't involve penetrating through the dura? So it must have been caused by the spinal then, right? Well, not exactly. Although an epidural is targeting the epidural space, there is still the possibility of having a wet tap when inserting the needle. This is when the epidural needle is accidentally advanced through the dura and CSF flashback. Now, although in our patient we had a seemingly uncomplicated epidural, this still does not eliminate the risk of developing PDPH. There is still the possibility of having the tip of the needle scratch through the dura without seeing any CSF flashback. This is why it is important to note that the risk factors for PDPH include female sex, young age, and pregnancy. In a young, pregnant female, like we have in our case today, the risk for PDPH is much higher than the general population. On the other hand, although with a spinal anesthetic we are puncturing through the dura intentionally, because this procedure involves a much smaller gauge needle than an epidural, the hole is typically very small and thus the risk for PDPH is roughly about 1%. Be sure to check our show notes where we've included a link to a page from the Labor Pains website that provides a nice and concise reference card for information on epidurals, including the risk of developing PDPH and many other complications. So now turning our heads to treatment for PDPH, this is typically conservative management with analgesics like acetaminophen or NSAIDs or even opioids for pain, recumbent positioning to minimize CSF leakage by decreasing hydrostatic pressure, oral or IV fluids, and caffeine to promote production of CSF. For severe or persistent PDPH, a blood patch is an ideal next step in management. This technique involves the injection of autologous blood at the level of the dural puncture, which, in theory, will plug the hole via mass effect or through coagulation. A single injection is about 90% effective in resolving PDPH, and a second injection is again 90% effective in initial non-responders. Having said that, however, it is important to remember that a blood patch involves placing another needle in the epidural space to inject the blood, and so there is, again, an imposed risk of uh, penetrating the dura. This means that the risk of an additional accidental dural puncture could make the headache even worse. Thanks, Dill. So our patient is treated conservatively with acetaminophen and NSAIDs, IV fluids, and caffeine. The next day, she's feeling better and is discharged home by her obstetrics team. At home, her headaches resolves completely over the next couple days. This marks the end of our case, Amazingly, we really hit a lot of good points there. Let's go over a quick summary of what we just learned. Number one, the different types of neuroaxial anesthesia. There's epidural anesthesia, which is going into the epidural space, which is between the ligamentum flavum and the dura matter. Some of the advantages of this is the adjustable duration 
intraop redosing and postoperative analgesia. Some of the disadvantages are that you're using a larger dose and there's a higher failure rate. Then we have spinal anesthesia, which is between which is which occurs between the arachnoid membrane and the pia matter and consists of the CSF. Some of the advantages of this is a higher success rate, faster onset, and smaller dosing. Some of the disadvantages include a shorter duration of action and on the lumbar and it can only be applied on the lumbar side only. And here are some contraindications to neuroaxial anesthesia. Patient refusal to consent, thrombocytopenia, anticoagulation therapy, sepsis or local infection, fixed cardiac output states, increased intracranial pressure, and allergies. Amazing. So that brings us to the end of today's episode. We hope that you'll be able to apply what you have learned today in your upcoming clinical rotations. As always, we'd like to thank our resident content editor, Dr. Alexa Caldwell, and a big thanks to Dr. Cordovani for his continued support. Also, make sure to check out our website for the show notes. Tweet us, tweet at us on our Twitter page at Airwave Podcast and follow us on Instagram at Airwave Podcast for any questions or suggestions. And until next time, keep working hard, stay healthy and safe, and take some nice deep breaths and count backwards from 10.